Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is a wizard programmer who is probably best known for bringing Dragon's Lair to the Amiga, Doom to the SNES, as well as being behind the PlayStation emulator Bleem. I'm convinced he has a superpower that he's not telling anyone. I'd like to welcome Randy Linden. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you very much. That's that's a nice introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, people do wonder, you know, you do have an extensive skill set there. <laughs> yes. I, well, I've been doing this now uh, for 40 years. So that's a long time. I got my start when I was very young. When I was 13, I had my first program uh, professionally published. Um, I was lucky because my mom got got us a, a Commodore 64. And at school, we had a Commodore pet computer. And they were both 6502 based. And so I was able to take what I learned at school. Um, and th there was no official uh, computer class at school. It was it was all self-taught. Hmm. Um, but I was able to take that home and practice at home and uh, write a centipede clone uh, when I was 13 on the Commodore 64. And that's how I got my start. And uh, I really liked it. I, I was lucky to have found my calling um, so early on uh, in life. And I've been doing it ever since. You're lucky because most people don't know what they want to do at that age. Yeah, I didn't know that it was what I wanted to do um as a career i just knew that i really enjoyed doing it and uh, uh stuck and with you it. are <laughs> and here i am yeah yeah yeah, yeah 40 yeah. years later exactly so that's awesome um just to switch things up a little bit because i know you've sure. talked about doom extensively but i thought there's a bit of a nice break and we have talked about this off air a little bit but your experience with Zelda Breath of the Wild, right? Because yes. you don't you don't get to play video games much these days, and yet you've put 120 plus hours into it over the last few months. Yes. Um, but just your overall experience with it and how you felt about it uh, from a programming standpoint and whether you were able to separate the two or whether you were looking at things and trying to figure it out. Both. <laughs> Both. Both. Zelda is, is um, as I've described, Nintendo games, uh, and, and Nintendo really seems to nail this. The, their games are like an onion, where you peel back one layer, and there's another layer, and another layer, and another layer, and you just wonder how much deeper you can go, and yet it just keeps on going. And I was both immersed in Zelda. Um, I originally got it because... Tears of the Kingdom was coming out, and all of my friends at work said, you've got to play Breath of the Wild. It's really, really good. And now my favorite game up to that point was Super Mario Odyssey, which beat out Super Mario World from, mm. from this, the Super NES. Day. That's, that was the last 2D platformer that I played. Um, and so I, I got Breath of the Wild, and I got a really good deal and wasn't expecting it to, to be so all-consuming of my spare time. <laughs> and so in a matter of, of three, two, three, four months, I, I managed to rack up. I didn't even know that, that the Switch kept track of how long you played a particular title. Hmm. And for comparison purposes... Super Mario Odyssey, I think it said that I had played between 20 and 30 hours. Okay, and that's and, a decent amount. And Zelda was 120 hours. 
and I was I was marveling at what they were able to accomplish from a technical level with the shadows and the the, the graphics and the texturing and the level of detail, even like the blades of grass. Um, and so I was looking at it from a technical standpoint, but also found myself slipping away into the world of, of Breath of the Wild because it was just so well done. The, the physics engine that they've got and, and the interaction of, of the, the characters and even some of the annoying uh, side quests and shrine quests that you have to do and by annoying, I, uh, annoying because it, some of them require specific timing, time of oh, day, right. and some of them require you to, to stealthily follow another character and see where they go. And and uh, uh, after having played Zelda for 120 plus hours, I've still only completed one of the ancient beasts there's three there's three and then there's ganon at the end and i've only completed the very first one um so that wow. that's that, yeah that should tell you how how broad the game is i i got my money's worth without a, a shadow of a doubt oh yeah i think you would have got your money's worth after the first what 30 hours oh yeah or less. <laughs> everything now is just a bonus Oh, exactly, exactly, yeah. and and uh, it it still kept me um, engaged and and uh, amazed, and so yeah, it's it's absolutely one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen on on a computer. Is there one particular standout moment, or just one moment where you're like, "How in the world did they pull this off?" Um, I'm thinking that that. Yes, there is. The very first time it starts to rain and the lightning strikes <laughs> and the screen lights up and the, the vibration motors were, I, I jumped because it, it startled me so much. Um, the, the quality of the graphics and their special effects that, that, that uh, they, they really paid attention to. I would have to say that really stood out as something special. It, it it scared me the very first time that I was in the lightning storm and uh, wasn't expecting that. I was expecting, oh, you know, it starts to rain and you're thinking, okay, so they're going to make rain effects and it's going to be, a, you know, a little smeary and it's going to be the standard fare that you've seen all the time. And uh, then all of a sudden, this this lightning bolt strikes really close by, and you can hear it, and the reverberation, and the vibration motors go off. And yeah, when you're playing in portable mode, it 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 really surprised me. Yeah. So with the with the programming aspect of it, were you just marveling all the time, or were you able yes. to disconnect yourself fully? Because sometimes game developers, because of what they do they just look for all the things that are wrong or the things they would have improved on or just try and point out everything. So I'm just wondering, because it's, it's rare for that to happen, right? Where someone could be fully disconnected from it mm -hmm. and just be fully immersed in it without trying to work out, I suppose, how the sausage was made. In this yes. Case. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would, I would sort of go between marveling at the graphics, wondering how they were made, coming up with ways in, in which to implement those graphics 
um, every so often I would notice there was a, a level of detail snap um, off in the distance, something all of a sudden snaps between two different levels of detail yeah. and you could, you could see the graphics change. Um, it was really well hidden in, in Breath of the Wild. Um, I was conversely, uh, as much as it was my favorite game until Breath of the Wild, I was a little more, um, I don't want to say underwhelmed, but um, I wasn't as surprised and impressed with the level of graphics in Super Mario Odyssey hmm. as much as I was with Breath of the Wild. Um, especially the first level, I, I thought that the fog effects where they had the rolling sort of fog and, and uh, the, the, in the the um, the valleys where you sort of run in between you know the hills and there's valleys and there's fog and it rolls, you can you can sort of see the polygon edges there, um, and that just that doesn't really happen in Breath of the Wild. Uh, I don't know if they use the same engine or the same technology or or what groups exist at N Nintendo these days. Um, but I was much more impressed all around with the the, the level of graphics um, that were in Breath of the Wild, and stunned that it it's running on a Switch. I mean, that's yeah, that's amazing. So, does that motivate you? You play a game like that, and yeah. you get charged up, I suppose, and you're like, "Oh, I've got to up my game here as a programmer." Yes, absolutely. That's like, oh wow, they did something. Like I said, that that uh, that was a perfect example with the lightning strike. It's like, wow, they really made excellent use of the platform. Hmm. Um, and uh, it does. It 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 sort of makes me look back and and remember a lot of the the things that I have done, and could I have done it better? There's always better. It's always oh, cool. possible to do something better, especially when it comes to programming. Um, and I am still impressed when people write their very first program because it takes such a, a leap in the way that you think about things to be able to write any program. And I'm always impressed when people write their first programs. And it takes a lot for me to be surprised and delighted um, but Breath of the Wild really, this isn't a commercial for Breath of the Wild. <laughs> no, uh, no, it's just going this it, way. It's fine. It, it just really, really, uh, they, they really did everything so well that it, um, it serves as an excellent example of what happens when you spend a lot of time and you can really apply polish, uh, to that degree. It's, it's very impressive. Yeah. Something else that's also impressive is obviously your your Doom SNES port. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, you have talked about it extensively, so I thought I'd try and tackle this from a couple of different angles or touch on nuances that maybe haven't been covered. Um, yeah. One one thing in particular was the rocket launcher in Doom yes. SNES, right? It's yes. buffed up more than the PC version. Yes. I'm wondering what what caused that to happen. Was that Why? intentional and un unintentional byproduct of something that you implemented or needed to change? 
both um it was intentional um but it was a side effect of not having access to any of the original id source data uh resources the the um engine the technology was all developed completely independently mm. so everything that's in doom for the snes is based on observation of the pc version um now sometimes i get the observations wrong and and uh uh one of them uh is the well there's there's two of them one of them is the strength of the of the rocket launcher yeah so the rocket launcher is more powerful in doom for the snes um and it works to i think that version's advantage because uh the monsters there's um there's no infighting with the monsters they're more difficult yeah and they're more difficult because they sort of go straight towards you yeah they charge exactly. right at you every time <laughs> yes exactly and so the 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 gameplay um was reviewed by id software it was reviewed by sculptured sculptured software's uh qa team but it was also reviewed and um they uh, by id software and they provided feedback uh so it was tweaked and it was adjusted um because they knew that it was an original engine and, and we couldn't just set the the damage values to be exactly the same yes um because they, there's no direct parallel like that when when you compare the two engines that they produce similar visual results but it's sort of like comparing apples and oranges they're, they're both fruit but they're different fruits even though they're both sort of round and from a distance they sort of look the same um for doom for the snes there's a number of things that are born out of that um uh reverse engineering how things work um one of them is the rocket launchers and and another one is uh the, the shotgun fires a, a blast that's effectively one big bullet rather than individual shells so did id software just not notice it when they were because they were playtesting it i'm i'm assuming mm -hmm. right yes and they yes. just didn't notice that the rocket launcher was more buff or they just didn't care or they thought it worked well for your version of the game that's i think it's the latter that they they felt that it worked well um for the super nes version of the game right. um especially with the difficulty um being higher in the super nes version um i uh my recollection is that they thought that the weapons were balanced um and that the gameplay was a good approximation of the pc version so was monster infighting ever considered or did you rule that out quite early on in the process when you were trying to optimize it that's that's a good question um monster infighting was ruled out not from a technical perspective but because there are no um rotations for the monsters so the monsters always face you yeah and that was done for space reasons uh so the the rom size was the maximum that's supported by the super effects 2 
which was 16 megabits or two megabytes. Um, and there was no room in the ROM to store all the different directions of the rotations for the for the enemies um, or, or even uh, the objects. And so they, the monsters always face you. And if there was monster infighting, it would just look bizarre. Um, like <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, the demons would, you know, throw fireballs and they would be coming out of the side and it, it would just look weird that two monsters that were facing you would be fighting against each other, especially off in the distance. So that was, uh, that was a non-technical um, limitation of the engine. It was a space limitation. But you also had, so say in the PC version, imps can't hurt other imps. But in the SNES version, they can. Like say if one's behind each other and it fires a fireball and it hits the yes. one in front, in, yes. in front, it will damage it, right? Yes. So was that, was that to try and offset the infighting? No, that was, that was a matter of, um, I think that was mostly a matter of if there's a, a projectile and it intersects with another object, that object is going to be damaged. And so it's one of those cases where, oh, the PC version has this caveat that nobody brought up and nobody mentioned and nobody said, well, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. And so logically, um, I just thought, well, there's a projectile and if it intersects with some other object, that object gets damaged. That makes sense from a from a, a, a realism perspective. And nobody said that the imp's damage shouldn't do damage to another imp. Hmm. So it so it does. With nightmare mode, mm -hmm. I mean, you must have ruled out pretty early the whole respawning monsters. I mean, <laughs> no, really? Um, yes, uh, that that was a that was another. It's not a technical limitation because the amount of time that that the game spends um, running the game logic is small compared to the amount of time that it spends drawing and rendering the display. Um, so to add a little bit of extra logic to have the monsters um, respawn in Nightmare was, uh, it's not a, a technical challenge to do so. It was just one of those, had no idea that, that, that uh, that's what happened in Nightmare Mode. I just thought the difficulty was harder in Nightmare Mode. Um, but didn't realize that the monsters respond. So that's why in Doom for the SNES, they don't do it because nobody said, by the way, the monsters don't respawn. You're going to fix that. And I would have fixed it. Oh, so you could have actually done it. Wow. Yes. That would yeah. have made the nightmare mode even harder, Even more difficult. Yeah. Because if I recall correctly, in the PC version on Nightmare, the demons don't necessarily charge at you right they just fire projectiles just constantly that's pretty much yes. what they do whereas in the snes version they're already faster as it is and then on nightmare yes. it's kicked it up a notch so even yes. enemies like the barons of hell are super fast right on nightmare they yes just charge right at you so if yeah. if they could charge right at you and the respawn thing 
it as would well. make it very difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the logic is very, very simple. Um, it basically looks at the position of, of the two you and compared to the, the monster, and it knows to it knows how to move towards you following the shortest path, and that's what it does. That's all it does. It's very, very simple logic. And right. that same movement logic is applied to all of the monsters. The monsters don't have separate custom logic for each of the monsters. So that's why the, the Barons of Hell charge straight at you, just like all the other monsters. They just charge straight at you. Yeah, and it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it being super scary when I was just a, a young and playing it. I was like, oh, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, on this on a Super NES back in 1995. Yeah, 95 is when it released. Yeah. Yeah, 1995. Um the the average person didn't have a a a $2000 PC to run Doom. And so the next you know, the next if you don't didn't have a PC, you had a gaming platform. And if you had one of the gaming platforms, you either had a Genesis or, or Mega Drive, or you had a Super NES. And uh, yeah, so the, the Super NES version, it was um, one of the few more um, realistic, more violent uh, games out there at the time. There was that, there was... Um, uh, Mortal Kombat, for example, there was a handful of games that were more uh, explicit. Yes. Um, yeah. So, obviously, you were guessing everything when you were yes. porting it, right? So, yes, what it about was the stuff? Total guesswork. Yeah, yeah, but some of the stuff you actually can't see, right? Like you can't see the AI of the monsters. Right. Right. So, so, so on the SNES version, you... they're a lot more stupid. They are the, the SNES version. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, the monsters, the monsters basically don't have the same level of intelligence as they do on the PC version, and they just try and find the shortest path to get to you. Um, they fire at you if they're a certain distance away. Uh, otherwise, they use their hand-to-hand, -hand, their melee combat. Um, Is that something you could have fixed if you had more time? Or yes. So, yeah. So it was, it oh, was yeah, a time yeah. time thing. It was a time thing. Um, yeah. There was a tremendous pressure to get the the program done in time for the holiday season. Um, back then, if you weren't in time for Thanksgiving weekend, um, well, let me back up a bit. Uh, Thanksgiving Thanksgiving weekend, Black Friday, yes, as it as it's known. Um, was the beginning of the big sales season That's right. for video games in particular. But back then, there was no such thing as digital downloads. Um, not really. Uh, I mean, there were if you were looking at PC games, but not for cartridges that had to be physically manufactured. Um, so there was a huge amount of lead time for the cartridges because they had to pass Nintendo's um, quality assurance yeah. and certification. And then they had to be manufactured. 
and the cartridges were um for for doom for the super nes it was one of the first games to use the super fx2 so it had the custom chip on it it had a rom chip and the rom chip was custom silicon uh i mean it's it's just a rom chip don't get me wrong it's it's nothing fancy but it still had to be manufactured um and they had to place an order that they being williams or uh um, i think it was imagineer and ocean were the other partners yeah that's correct yes um, so they had to place their order for the manufacture of the cartridges and the cartridges then arrived by boat or well, huge ship, I think. Yeah. So there was this huge amount of lead time. Um, and I only presented, I vaguely recall presenting the game to sculptured six or eight months, um, before we, we wrapped and we finalized things. So there was a lot of pressure. So how do you deal with that as a programmer that needs to be in the zone at all times? I mean, I'm not sure if you're doing intense crunch or if you're doing overnighters to try and pull this off. I'm not sure if that was the case. Right. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Both. So how do you function? Because it is at a certain point, if you're not getting enough sleep or you're not getting enough rest, I'm sure the computer screen starts to look like there's dots on it. Right. And it would kind of just blur. Mm-hmm. It does. And I, what I find is um, I find that I can tell when I'm in the zone um, and just keep going and pushing. And I can also tell when I can't think clearly. Right. And at, at that point, I sort of take a step back and stop for a little while, um, take a pause, get some sleep, eat something, take a walk. Um, but especially when when i'm in the zone i don't like to interrupt the the what i what i view as not so much a technical process but a very creative process a lot of the projects that i've worked on um while they're technically impressive they solve things in a very creative way i view programming as a, a a really nice melding of of technical and creative aspects and when you're in the zone you're you're able to accomplish so much more um that uh, i usually try and if i'm in the zone uh, recognize it and stay in the zone for as long as i can but yeah there was a lot of crunch there was a lot of very very late nights and overnights um partially because the uh the uh, i guess i could say this now the financial arrangements um for my royalties were oh, adjusted right. for every week i was late i got one percent less and oh, uh, i will say i was two works? weeks late yeah i was two weeks late um so i got two percent less than i would have received um and i i can't say the total yeah. that I received. Of course, of course. Yeah. But uh, but yes, um, it was an unusual uh, uh, arrangement um, because there was uh, the uniqueness of the product, um, the unique ability I had 
bringing it to sculptured software to deliver the product. Um, but there was the challenge of the deadline and the time frame, and so we we came to an agreement whereby for every week that I overran, uh, as I said, uh, we agreed to deduct one percentage off of, of my royalty rate. Um, and that so be... that served as an incentive. Okay. But that still must be hard though, because you've got to try and manage your time effectively, but you can't determine yes. when you're going to be in the zone and when you're not going to be in the zone, right? True. Um, that's where the... The I guess let's see here. Two, three. I, I guess that was only how many years programming was that? Eighty-three to ninety-five. So I guess that would have been I'd been a programmer for twelve, thirteen years at that point. Which is um, a long time already. Yeah, yeah. In the in this field, that's that's a lot of experience. Yes. Um, uh, I'm I'm I am pretty good at estimating um, my time, what I can accomplish, uh, and I would say I back that up with hours. If if my estimate is off, I willingly put in the extra hours to meet the deadlines. Yes. Um, rather than just blow past the deadlines um, that that I, I generally don't do. Uh, and because of the, there was a, there was such an importance on hitting the release dates for Doom for the Super NES, partially because of the advertising budget. They, they did a commercial, a TV commercial um, for Doom wow. for the Super NES. And there was a, lots and lots of, of money and budget going into the advertising. So if we were late and we missed our ship date, not only would it cost us in terms of sales because we missed Black Friday, but they had a special, I forget exactly what the date was, but they called it Doomsday right. when they were launching and they had TV commercials, and oh yeah, it was it was a big deal. So there's, there's... and I yeah, and I suppose your reputation is tied to it as well, right? So yes. if you don't meet your deadline, then that it almost yes. is like Chinese whispers, I suppose, and that gets around that Randy it didn't does. meet his deadline. So there's exactly. that pressure as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pressure, um, and th there's there's uh, a self-imposed pressure as well yes. to um i think that's quite common with creatives mm -hmm. yeah um to sort of push what was technically possible what was graphically possible what was achievable and do it in a, a short time frame um i don't know many programmers that say i'm going to do the absolute most average that i possibly can <laughs> and just you know, I, I, uh, most yeah, yeah. programmers I know say, Oh, I want to, I want to do so much more. Um, and, uh, are, are limited by the time frame. Um, the most important, I would have to say one of the most important things ever, as far as being a programmer is concerned 
is to ship. It is, it is incredibly difficult to actually ship product. Um, and especially when you've got a, a hard deadline, like we did with Doom, shipping was, you know, the features, features would be cut uh, in order to ship. One of the features that was cut uh, was the X-Band support. The X-Band oh, yes. support was only partially implemented in the actual cartridges. So I spent the, the following couple of months with people from Catapult Entertainment working on the X-Band support um, after the cartridges had already shipped. And you're probably thinking, well, wait a second, the cartridge was ROM. How did that work? It worked because um, I had uh, saved the version of the software at the particular build that was shipped on the ROM. And the Catapult X-Band hardware was sort of like a super duper game genie. Remember the game genie yeah, where that's right. With all you the could type codes. in the codes, right, yeah. all the cheat codes. And all it basically did was it modified, it watched the address bus. Um, and uh, let me put this really simply, it changed memory. It had the ability to change memory uh, on a temporary basis. Yeah. So the ROM could be patched with RAM that was in the Catapult X-Band hardware. And so it took a couple of months working to get the multiplayer finished because I had left little patch points uh, throughout the the ROM um, so they were waiting to be used but it took that much longer um, I would have liked to have shipped with the expand support built in but it, there just wasn't time so you have a you're known in the industry as being a lightning quick programmer but I suppose how do you balance the whole quality versus quantity thing right because if you're doing yeah. stuff very quickly then usually the quality gets compromised. Usually. Sometimes you can get that balance right. And you're obviously very good at that. But I'm wondering if you've always had that ability or is that something that's a craft you really had to hone and really, really yeah. um, pinpoint and get down. You're right. You're, you're exactly right on that. Um, it took years. Um, I, I think that, that one of the um, most important skills to have as a programmer is discipline. The ability to um, sort of buckle down and focus and sort of know your end goal. Um, I, used to, I used to like saying that I could look at the big picture and I could also see all the small details. Um, and that's true but it requires a huge amount of discipline to be able to break things apart into small enough manageable pieces so that you can program them and practice uh i think is a, is the the flip side of of discipline or or the 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 complementary aspect of discipline it took a lot of practice um to be able to write code 
uh, quickly and lots of it and get it right. Um, I, I generally speaking don't have many bugs in my code, um, but that's because as I'm writing my code, I'm also testing it. Uh, I, I don't sort of put together a whole bunch of code and just send it off to testing and hope things work. I test what I've written to make sure it does what I think it's supposed to be doing. And of course, everybody has bugs. I'm not yeah, saying course. that my code doesn't have bugs. Um, but usually the bugs that, that I've written are either something really stupid that it's like, oops, yeah, really should have, you know, tightened things up a little bit there, or it's something really, really complicated. Um, one of the most difficult bugs that I had to track down was actually in Bleemcast. And it was with Metal Gear Solid. And there was um, there was a, a, a tester who was able to play the game and get it to lock up on the Dreamcast. Hmm. And I couldn't reproduce it. Nobody else could reproduce it, but give the game to this particular player and even doing the same things that he was doing couldn't reproduce it but he was able to do it 100% of the time and I spent I want to say three days debugging this one particular bug and it turns out that it was a hardware bug in the power VR chipset there was a, a particular combination of polygons that were being rendered by the tile accelerator which basically takes a, a given polygon and it splits it up into 32 by 32 pixel tiles. Right. So they only have to deal with one 32 by 32 pixel tile at a time. And if an edge of a polygon ever so slightly happens to be inside a tile, but skirt right along the edge, and you're using a particular mode of this PowerVR hardware, the tile accelerator gets confused and the graphics chip locks up. And you're probably thinking, why didn't other games on the Dreamcast ever just hang for no particular reason? And I was wondering the same thing myself. <laughs> and I thought, this can't possibly be that, that you know, Metal Gear Solid on Dreamcast is the only game that's exhibiting this. And so I reverse engineered uh, some of the Sega libraries. And it turns out that they detect this particular situation where the graphics hardware has locked up. And if the graphics hardware is not responding, they reset the graphics hardware. So it was a known issue, but not to me. Um, so that's a, an example of a bug that, that uh, you would sort of not expect to have to deal with um but but isn't you get it good at debugging yeah but also isn't it a case of like trying to find a needle in a haystack when you're trying to yes. find this one little issue right yeah and you have to go through it all yeah is i have to like, break down the is that one of the most polygons. monotonous things that you have yes. to do yeah <laughs> oh yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> very 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 monotonous um because i i knew that the graphics hardware was 
was was seizing. It was failing to respond. It was failing to accept new input. So I knew it had something to do with the graphics, but couldn't for the life of me figure out what I was doing wrong looking at the hardware specs and the, here's how things are supposed to operate and you do this and this and this and this is supposed to happen. And so I did this and this and this and nothing. Graphics hardware is just not responding. Um, but it was a case of it didn't have a choice. It was sort of like the same thing with Doom for the Super NES. Didn't have a choice in whether or not I was going to be late. I had to be on time. And in this case, with Bleem for Dreamcast, didn't have a choice. The bug had to be tracked down and the bug had to be fixed. Um, so I set out polygon by polygon, finding out exactly what data was being sent down to the graphics hardware. And that's when I realized, oh, there's this particular polygon that it, what it turned out to be was the the guy moved his player in a particular way so that the angle of the camera got a scene. And we're talking about a full 3D scene here. Wow. So the one polygon just happened to skirt the very edge of in one tile, but out of another tile... And that happened to trigger the problem. That's crazy. One little thing can cause yeah. a cascade of problems. Yes. And it would manifest itself in the game locking up. Yeah. Um, and it took hours and hours and hours to debug uh, what was going on to, to discover that it was the graphics hardware. Because... When a game freezes, the first thing you think of, oh, something's gone wrong with the dynamic recompiler, or something's gone wrong where it's not accepting input from the joystick anymore, or mm. the it took me a while to identify and isolate because the screen wasn't corrupted. It was just frozen. And everything was still running in the background. It's just that it wasn't able to send down new polygon lists to the tile accelerator because the tile accelerator had gotten stuck. Mm. Something that I've, I don't think I've ever heard programmers actually ever discuss, but in terms of like what you eat, your diet, right? Because oh. that can contribute <laughs> to brain fog, I suppose. Like if you overeat, then you feel lethargic yes. and you can't work. So are you yes. very cautious about what you eat or when you don't eat or you time everything? Like if you're in the zone, you don't eat at all. Or there's yes. certain foods that you avoid to prevent yourself from getting any type of brain fog? Not really. Um, I have a terrible diet. Uh, <laughs> I have a, I have, I have sweet teeth. Um, I love sweets. You got a good set of uh, teeth though. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I like sweets. Um, I used to drink Coca-Cola regular, not not the diet stuff, because uh, as it turns out, I'm allergic to the the artificial sweeteners. Ah, so right. I just, okay. Yeah, so I, I just drank regular Coca-Cola, lots and lots and lots of it. Um, but there isn't a particular diet that I adhere to. Uh, but I... When I'm in the zone, 
Uh, I don't think about time. I don't think about eating. I don't think about well, sleeping. Yeah, I yeah. can't. I, it, it just doesn't even. Well, you can't risk losing it as well, right? You're in that. Well, zone. that's the problem. That's, and you don't know exactly when you're going to be in that. You you don't know when you're going to be in that zone again, right? So yes. it's it's yes. like finding the holy grail in a way. So you have to. It is. It really is. Everything yeah. sort of makes perfect sense. Everything sort of clicks. All the pieces fit together perfectly. Um. And I found that that with practice, the more you practice the more frequently you end up in the zone. Um, I, I, I think it's probably something similar to what, what professional athletes experience when they're in the zone and they can't miss a, th a, a free throw. Yeah. Um, when it comes to programming, they say, um, you know, practice makes perfect. Um, a lot of practice really does increase the frequency um, with which I find myself being in the zone and able to knock out a lot of code, even stuff that's tedious or stuff that's not interesting, stuff that's that's more boring. Um, I, I find that uh, my brain just starts um, clicking on its own and things just sort of come together really well. Right. So what do you focus on first in terms of programming? Like say with Doom snares right is optimization like right at the top that's what you focus on first or are you more about getting your hands dirty and just getting in the midst of it and then trying to work it out from there like do you have a structured template that you follow or is it kind of a case-by-case -case basis it, it really is a case-by-case -case basis with with doom for the super nes the first task was to to um render the graphics well let me back up that's the second task. The first task was to understand the data formats because I had the PC version and uh, there was the unofficial Doom specs, which sort of broke apart the WAD file. And here's how all the, all the data pieces from the WAD file are um, assembled together into you know, one large package. Uh, so the first step, was finding that information, using that information. And, and I've often said that, that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We absolutely do. Mm. Um, everything that I do has, has been based on all the experts and all the, the innovators uh, and entrepreneurs that have come before me that have made it possible for me to do the kind of things that I do. Um, so I used the Doom specs. I wrote a tool that broke apart the WAD file into all the individual components. And then I set about writing a rendering engine. Um, and this is the same process that I used when I wrote the Quake for Game Boy Advance. Yeah, which I was going to the touch very, on. Yep, oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yep, the yep. We can go into thing, that later, yeah. <laughs> was to, to write the rendering technology. Um, for, for Doom for the Super NES, I wanted to make sure it was feasible. My gut instinct, I don't, I don't, um, I don't usually do the back of the napkin kind of calculations and write down some numbers and 
get a thumbs up or a, a thumbs down. Um, I just sort of look at at the the combination of hardware and software, and I just get a good gut instinct on whether or not something is technically feasible. Um, that's exactly what happened when my partner uh, at Bleem, David Herpelsheimer, said to me, what do you think about doing this for the Sega Dreamcast? I looked at the specs. I thought about it for a little while, and my gut instinct was, yes, this is something that we can do. And that was the same thing with Doom for the Super NES. My gut instinct, before I knew much about the, the Super FX chipset, was that there was enough horsepower there to make it possible. Um, so I, I, I guess I would summarize it by saying optimization came later. Um, the first step for me, uh, and I think that, that that's a common first step, was getting something visual. Yeah. Do you get... Like, if you see online that someone says, oh, a port to this game wouldn't be possible, does that fire you up a little bit? And you're like, oh, <laughs> yes. no, it can. Like, I'm wondering if yes. that was the case with the whole Quake uh, GBA prototype that you did. I'm, I'm, not, I'm um, not sure what prompted you to want to do that. To, to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was two things. Um, technical... Technical chops, definitely. The challenge, challenge accepted. Yeah. Um, it was that Game Boy Advance um, was at the peak of popularity. Uh, Doom was a few years behind. Quake was the, the latest and greatest. Uh, and I was... Um, familiar with the ARM processor. And so my gut instinct said, yes, you could do Quake. It might be in a lower resolution and it might not have all the features, but you could absolutely do Quake. If you could do Doom on the Super NES, why not? Quake on the Game Boy Advance? Absolutely. Mm. Um, and so I started off rendering a triangle. That's exactly how the Game Boy Advance code for what eventually became Cyboid um, started off literally rendering a ultra high resolution. By high resolution, I'm not talking about the number of pixels. I'm talking about sub-pixel, sub-texel for lighting accuracy um, using the 32-bit fixed-point math of the ARM processor uh, and a whole bunch of tricks that I was able to to, to use um, to pull it off. Mm. If you could educate gamers on what the hardest thing is about programming, what would you say? And what is the most misunderstood thing about programming? Wow, good questions. <laughs> um yeah no because really because question. there's a massive disconnect between gamers and game developers right i see yes. a lot of stuff online where gamers say stuff and i'm like oh, i'm not an expert but i'm pretty sure that's not the case and i feel yes. like that gap hasn't been able to be bridged, bridged. somewhat yeah 
Yeah. And you're um, in the trenches and you've been doing it so long. So you must be more aware of it than most. Um, I think that most of the projects that I've worked on have been projects that people either didn't think about or thought were not possible. Hmm. So I haven't had as much experience with somebody looking at one of my projects and saying, this should have been done if you, you know, if you did this, this way, you, you should have done this, this way, this, you yeah. should have done this, this way. And um, now that doesn't mean to say that I haven't had people say, my gosh, what an <laughs> I'm sure, awful, yeah. absolute crap, just total garbage. Yes. No, I mean, critics are everywhere. Of course. <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone, everyone has at least one opinion. Yeah. Um, everyone's a critic. Everyone. Yes. Everyone is a critic. Uh, you, you sort of learn to set aside what a lot of people say, um, especially when it comes to saying that something can't be done um, or that, that something should be done in this particular way. Uh, a lot of stuff that I've done uh, comes out of nobody having done it yet which doesn't mean that there isn't somebody else on the planet doing the same kinds of things or working towards the same kinds of goals. Just that at the time, like uh, Dragon's Lair for the Amiga. Yeah. I, I happened to be the first one who did full screen, full color animation with stereo sound, streaming from floppy, floppy disks on a home computer. I... I believe that would have come along um i just happened to get there first and saw a couple of creative ways of using the amiga's custom chips and hardware to do something that hadn't yet been done um the same i think is true of of most of the projects that i've done that it's it's just been a matter of um creatively looking at things and i think that a lot of um a lot of non-programmers don't realize how much work goes into something uh it's it's um i, I guess this goes back to the creativity um, there's a lot of creativity involved, but there's a lot of personal pride. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of me tied up inside the projects that I work on, the programs that I write. And so you have to you have to put on your your you know your thick skin when when you read a lot of the reviews um, of your your. Your you work, know, your blood, sweat, and te tears, and yeah, yeah, and your work, um, because even the simplest things still takes effort. Uh, these days, you can just send down thousands and tens of hundreds of thousands of polygons to a GPU, and it rasterizes things for you, and it's like magic. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, back when I started. 
you had to write your own rasterizers. So you had to really understand the mathematics behind the graphics and all the work that went into it. Um, and I think that it's a, I think the fact that we've come a long way is a good thing because it means that we get a, a lot more diverse, creative programs and games um, like, uh, like Stray, for example. Yeah. Um, that I don't think would have come about were it not for the ability to use an existing engine and not have to worry about all of the minutia of calculating, you know, all, all of the, the, the math necessary to do all the rendering. Yeah. Does that sort of answer the question? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Um, but I think one of the cool things about you specifically and people from your era, and I suppose in the indie case, because with AAA, I suppose a lot of developers have become quite isolated in their roles, right? Programmer does this, designer does this, yes. uh, musician does this. But even though that you're a programmer, you still, there was an overlap a little bit yes. with design and um, I suppose audio and uh, art. So art, definitely. You've yeah, pro so you probably, probably heard of the term programmer art. Yeah. So programmer art. Yeah. Even if you don't know how to do those things specifically, you do have a, a basic understanding of it. Whereas, yes. you know, obviously you're in the trenches and you've got your thing to focus on, but you probably have a um, an understanding of the the overall picture. Yes, absolute different roles. Yeah, yeah. Um, the roles have become quite specialized. Yes. Uh, um, out of necessity, and I think part of that is the 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 disconnect um, between developers and non-developers. The the sheer amount of work and the diversity of talent that it takes to make a AAA game, it's staggering. Yes. Yeah. Um, and back 20, 30, 40 years ago, you did it all. Um, I remember for, for Bubbles, my centipede clone, I did the graphics, I did the sound, I did the, the programming. I didn't do the manual. I didn't do the box art. Um, but I did just about everything else. Hmm. Um, I think uh, a lot of the projects that I've chosen leverage my strengths um, as a programmer and minimize my my areas of weakness like art. I'm not a, a great artist. So if you look at the projects that I've done, they don't really require a lot of art. <laughs> they don't really require yeah. a lot of sound. Yeah. Um, and for those that do require art or sound, the art and sound already exist, like Dragon's Lair for the Amiga. Yeah. There was a lot of art that was required. So what, what I did was work with a team of people who touched up the digitized still frames. That's not something that I have the capacity to do. I mean, I could do it if I was pushed to do it but my strengths lie elsewhere um and so it was better to get artists 
to do the artwork. And I think the same is true um, these days, uh, much more so, where you've got multiple different disciplines within art. You've got riggers, you've got background artists, you've got environmental artists, you've got character modelers, you've got, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of specific um, art disciplines. And that's just art. And then you've got yeah. the same for sound, you've got the same for graphics, you've got all sorts of divisions. And I don't mean divisions in a negative way. I mean, you've got all sorts of specialization when it comes to graphics and rendering and technology and then you've got people who are experts at physics and ai and and pathfinding and all sorts of things and when somebody i i i hear people say oh it's a 70 dollar game and uh, 70 bucks is don't you know 70 dollars is 70 dollars yeah uh it's not an inconsequential amount of money but I remember games used to cost 60 to $70. Now that's Canadian, but that's back when Super Mario World came out. Um, and games were 60 or $70 back then. And so I don't think that the cost of games has managed to keep up with inflation. If anything, I think that games are undervalued. A perfect example is Breath of the Wild. I got uh, I got it on sale <laughs> and and uh, would have I would have knowing what I know now about how much time I would spend with the game, I would have paid double or triple what I paid for it. Mm. It's Easily. a very it's a very interesting conversation to have because a lot of people argue that because retail has been removed that the publisher earns more money because there's yes. not as much of a middleman, obviously. They, and, they do. And, and they, they do. do sell a, a great deal more than they did back in the day, right? Yes. I mean, they do. Breath, Breath of the Wild is the best-selling Zelda ever, right? I think it's yes. sold like the last three combined. So yeah. I, I think that's the argument. But and, I, and I, I, I think the argument about physical versus digital absolutely holds water when you're when you um how can i put this succinctly i cannot figure out why a particular game costs the exact same be it digital only or physical copy yeah that i i don't get that that to me makes no sense i don't like that i don't like it <laughs> One bit. I think well, that's that the probably physical the... copy should have a different price than a digital only. I think that's, that's just, just a... me. That's business. I think I'm trying to make the most money possible. I suppose. Well, yeah, yeah but it doesn't seem reasonable. It no, it isn't. Fair. It isn't reasonable. But yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't know. It. It just. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to anger an awful, <laughs> <laughs> an awful lot of business execs out there saying, "What on earth are you saying?" But, well, but that's yeah, why, I, I that's think why that we're not business prices. index. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's yeah. exactly it. That's exactly yeah. exactly it. I I think that uh, there's something to be said for paying a premium to get it on launch day. If you want it early, if you want it on launch day, I understand. Hey, you know what? You should 
you should pay a little bit more if you want to get it on launch day. But if you're paying for a digital only download, why does it cost the same as a physical cartridge now and case? They used to come with manuals. They don't anymore, which I'm not a big fan of that either. Mm. But I, I, I think there should be a gradation in the cost based on, you know, the actual cost. Well, games do tend to go down in price usually as time goes on, uh, unless yes. it's a like Nintendo pretty much never drops their prices, right? Yes. So it doesn't matter if you buy it now or in a year's time or two years' time, mm-hmm. it's still going to be the same price. And yes. I suppose that's smart from a business standpoint because they're not devaluing their product. Right. They know how yes. much it's worth. Whereas, yeah, I, bu- you know, I bought Breath of the Wild years after it came out. Yeah, I bought Mario Odyssey years after it came out, and uh, as I said, I would, I would, I would fork over three or four times just based on the fact that it, that it consumed 120 hours compared to other forms of entertainment. I think video games are one of the best values out there. Definitely far. agree. Yeah, and I know we've we've talked about a little bit. Of- about this off air but like say with movies right you don't get the same value for money if i go to the cinema and then you add up like popcorn and drinks and stuff yes you've pretty much paid the same if not more maybe than you would have gotten with a video game oh yeah and it's it's like twice three times uh in terms of the amount of entertainment that you're getting at at least and you can replay the video game yeah Whereas when you've watched the movie, that's it. <laughs> you, that's it. You watch the movie, and and that's that. Um, I haven't been to many movies recently, uh, and and that's probably why I I I am one of those uh, people that would prefer to wait till it. You know, I can stream it at home, streaming, yeah, watch it at my leisure. Um, but yeah, I think video games are one of the greatest value entertainment value per amount of of money spent um and i think that that there is a disconnect um the sort of looping back to your your prior question there's a disconnect with how much goes into making triple a titles these days people expect that because there's unreal engine for example that every game is going to look like it's made with unreal engine and it's made by a large team of people and i i I think that those expectations are unrealistic yeah and the standard has gone up so much right that what yes what gamers will tolerate is a lot different to the 16-bit era the the expectations way up here and i mean you're seeing it a lot with a lot of these layoffs in the industry right you know because they're not making the money that they need to to justify the making of like these triple A games that are taking between what, five to seven years now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's an inordinate amount of capital and resources that go into making these triple A titles. And so, yeah, uh, I am a little bit surprised at the, at the, the amount and the, the, the breadth of the layoffs Um, from seemingly successful companies uh i i wonder how much of it has to do with real economics and and how much of it has to do with shareholder value 
Um, I think budgets probably has something to do with it as well. Yeah. Style of management, I feel. Yeah. Like it's interesting, like when you look at say Nintendo, when they were suffering with say the Wii U, right, and Iwata and all the execs, they took pay cuts yes. in order to avoid laying off any of their staff. Yes. It doesn't really work quite like that in the West, right? They'll lay no. off a whole bunch of staff and then the CEO gets like a $15 million bonus or something. Bonus, so, yes, a bonus yeah, yeah. because now there's no profits. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Makes no sense. So different None. approaches. Yes. And maybe that's yeah. a model that they should probably reevaluate because if you don't yes. have the people in the trenches, then the company's worthless. Yeah. The well, people in the exactly suits can't it. make the game, right? So. No, no. And, and it's, it is sort of getting back to your other question, um, it is more and more rare for small teams to be successful because it does take, um, back when when I did, uh, well, even Doom for the Super NES, the graphics were largely done because they were taken from the PC version. The sound effects were largely done, but the music needed a lot of work. The levels needed a lot of work. There, there was just a lot of people that were involved in making the product, even though it it, it was a port, um, which isn't to say that a port is less work than an original title. Sometimes a port can be more work than an original title. Mm. Um, but a lot of projects that used to be possible with a real small number of people isn't possible. It's, you know, you need multiple artists uh multiple people to work on sound multiple programmers to make something that's that's at the sort of the minimum bar to entry um based on the expectations i remember when you know games had hideous graphics but they were spectacular compared to what had come before them like one of my favorite games is Xevious. Okay. Um, it's it's the top-down shooter. Yep. But the graphics made it look 3D because they had done shading on on the curved surfaces and the little pyramids and, and things like that. Um, and the graphics were spectacular for the day. And it was just a a 2D scrolling shooter. Um those days where that that generation over generational leap of graphics or sound or technology there are fewer and fewer um big steps up like that these yeah. days the the yeah. increment of increase is smaller and smaller like i can't yes. really notice a big difference between the ps4 and ps5 compared to say the ps2 to ps3 that was a yeah abso job, absolutely right? and and you know to use breath of the wild again it's like the the level of graphics and the fidelity and the character animations looked awesome to me even though it's a switch and the switch is uh, is less powerful than a ps5 and less powerful than an xbox series s or x and yet, uh, 120 hours later. Yeah, yeah. 
And I suppose that comes down to graphical art style as well, right? Between, yes. say, stylized versus realistic, because that does yes. play a part. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, final question before I wrap up. Uh, Sandy Peterson talked about how he worked on some of the levels of Doom SNES, which is not the case. Um, is I think he's getting... To, to, to my recollection, yeah. I think he's getting the Super NES version confused with the Jaguar version. Yeah. Because... Which, which can easily happen. Yes. I'm sure my... when you've worked on a game that was that long ago, details blur. Yes. So my recollection can... <laughs> is that, that, that Sandy Peterson may have reviewed the levels, um, but the actual level editing was minor it was done at sculptured software we really tried to keep the fidelity of the geometry the detail of the levels as much it was for two reasons um one uh i had written a tool that basically took a doom level um and i released it on my github uh, along with all the code for the super nes version of doom mm. Um, so people can see exactly what I had at the time. Uh, and it would take a ver a, a level of doom and convert it to my engine's formats. Um, but there was no editor. Now, there were public domain editors that were available at the time, and that's what was used to edit the level. But the level edits were minor. We, we, largely left the the levels untouched um because a it was simpler b um level editing was done as i said using a a, a community developed tool that wasn't you know apparently nearly as powerful as the one that did software had which we didn't have access to um and uh i think sandy peterson or somebody I did probably reviewed because I know that we sent versions to it for approval. Um, but to my knowledge, he wasn't involved in the, in the the level editing. The you know. So who? So for example, right? So in the shores of hell, there's one level E two M two, which is E two M three, I think, in the PC version. But because you'd cut out E2, M2, which I think had yes. a secret exit, you had to implement yes, it. Yes, so we had yeah. to add so you add in, to another level. Yeah, so you added in those, well, that room, right? Um, yes. Do you remember who added that? My guess um, would be that it probably was John Coffey. Right. Mr. John, John Coffey. Yes. <laughs> like the drink, only not spelt the same. For Green Mile. Fans. That is that is correct. <laughs> um, John Coffey uh, knew, at, uh, at least as far as everyone at the office, and Sculpture Software was a, a fairly large, as far as developers go, not large compared to developers these days. Yeah, but back in the day, it was pretty large. Back in the day, it was large developer. And John Coffey knew everything there was to know about Doom. If ever I had a question about how something operates... Uh, about any of the levels, about the placement of the objects, John Coffey knew all of it. 
absolutely all of it. Um, as a matter of fact, John Coffey once made, uh, at one point, a number of edits to the levels. He had changed the placement of some of the objects and some of the monsters and changed a little bit of the geometry um, to make it play better on the Super NES version. Hmm. And we sent it to id Software and said, what do you think of this? And they were having none of it. They, <laughs> they said, yeah, absolutely not. We want the levels to be as close to the PC as as you possibly can. So, Which I can understand. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, he, that's their ex area of expertise. Um, and so for that reason, along with all the other ones, we, we pretty much... One of the one of the changes I know that was made was because of an engine limitation, and that is the metallic grates, where there's areas that are solid and areas that you can see through mm. in one texture. My engine doesn't do that. My engine doesn't have the ability to render textures that have solid, opaque areas and also transparent areas. Mm. So where those grates were in levels they were removed. Um, but other than that, the geometry editing was really, really minimal. Hmm. Cool. Well, hey, Randy, I will wrap up there. This has been an amazing privilege. Thank you for allocating me your time. My work pleasure. time, family time, fun. probably a mixture work, of work. Work time and family time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to answer your questions. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for that. If anyone wants to keep up to date with what you're doing, is there somewhere where they can go? Social yeah, media? yeah. Um, they yes, uh, they can reach me as uh, at Randall R A N D A L Linden L I N D E N on Twitter, or they can go to randalinden.com, uh, and that's a link tree which has links to my social media and stuff like that. I I will say as a, a warning i don't post a lot um, it's probably a good thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah all right well uh, that is the show everyone make sure you share like and subscribe and keep up to date with all the work randy is working on jurassic park that's the one that's coming next is it yes yes yeah. i'm working on the uh, steam version as a matter of fact of uh, jurassic park and get back to it as, as soon as we hang up here yeah cool all right stay safe everyone bye